So in memory of Chaya Rachel Bat Mordechai. Um, I'm not sure that I have a good answer to this question. I do believe this is one of the questions that our generation, I love me and you being in the same generation, it works for me, um, is, is really starting to struggle with. And if there was ever an event that, that sort of brought this to the forefront, it would be the events of the last year. Okay? Um, so... I, I, wanna, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to read you a couple things because this is just the best way for me to present this problem. Okay? This is, a, um, this is a, a, a story I got over the email, and I, I found it to be a very moving story until I got the next piece. But this is written by a guy called uh, Isaac Stephen Hirschkopf. Um, it was a special to the Jewish Week, reputable magazine. I read something there, I assume it to be correct. I don't know, right? He's talking about uh, when he was a kid, um, when he grew up, I believe in Washington Heights, um, everybody he knew were Holocaust survivors. He remembers his mother bursting into tears when he asked her when he was going to get his number on his arm, right? And he was talking about sort of the power of understanding the Shoah. This is sent out, sent around before Yom HaShoah. Um, and, and sort of that his generation, which it seems is older than mine, um, they didn't even appreciate what the Shoah was. The word Shoah wasn't even in use after the Shoah. It took a while for that sort of to enter the lexicon. Survivors didn't talk about it in the 50s. You know, it was really Eichmann's trial in 1961 that, that forced some survivors out of the woodwork and began that dialogue, right? And in retrospect, sort of, struggling with what it meant to be a survivor and who they were, he writes the following. I learned the answer to this question, how to understand and how to think about survivors, from Rav Moshe Feinstein. This Gadol Ador, this greatest sage of his generation, was so renowned, he was referred to simply as Rav Moshe. The closest he came, I'm reading what this fellow's writing, to this legend was at uh, Yeshiva University High School, MTA, where uh, his Rebbe, Rav Tendler, was Rav Moshe's son-in-law. Right? And whenever anybody talked about Rav Moshe, I remember as a kid personally meeting Rav Moshe once. We were in awe of Rav Moshe. I was shocked to discover that I was taller than him when I was like 16, uh, which, as you can imagine, says something about his height. Um, we just thought he must be huge because he's Rav Moshe. One summer, he writes, I was spending a week with my aunt and uncle in upstate Ellenville, upstate New York. Uncle David and Aunt Seba, survivors themselves, as the doctor and nurse in charge of the concentration camp infirmary had managed to save the lives of innumerable inmates, including my mother and sister. After the war, they had set up a medical practice in this small Catskill village where I discovered to my amazement they had one celebrity patient, Rav Moshe. My aunt mentioned casually that Rav Moshe had an appointment the next day. Would I like to meet him? Would I? It was like asking me would I like to meet God. I couldn't sleep that night agonizing over what I should wear. Should I approach him? What should I say? Should I mention that his son-in-law was my Rebbe? Should I speak to him in English or in my rudimentary Yiddish? I was seated in the waiting room in the best clothing I had with me an hour before his appointment. It seemed like an eternity, but eventually he arrived accompanied by, his, by an assistant on each side. He didn't notice me. I was frozen. As if Moshe walks into the room. I had intended to rise deferentially when he entered, but I didn't. I had prepared a few sentences that I had repeatedly memorized, but my heart was beating too quickly, my tongue was tight, I couldn't talk. 
My aunt had heard the charm when he entered and came out of the office. Is the, the nurse or the doctor. Rabbi Feinstein, did you meet my nephew, Ike? Can you believe a Shegetz like me has a yeshiva bachar in the family? Right? I guess she wasn't observant. Rav Moshe finally looked at me. I was mortified. My aunt was addressing him irreverently. She was joking with him. She had called me Ike, not Yitzchak or even Isaac. Rav Moshe finally looked at me. And I was horrified. Then it got even worse. She walked over to him. Surely she knew not to shake his hand. She didn't. She kissed him affectionately on the cheek, as she did many of her favorite patients. She then told him my uncle would see him in a minute and return to the office. Rav Moshe and his attendants turned and looked at me, because I was the nephew that was just introduced. I thought, accusingly, I wanted to die. In a panic, I walked over to him and started to apologize and profusely, Rabbi Feinstein, I apologize, my aunt, she isn't firm, she doesn't understand. He immediately placed his finger on my lips to stop me from talking. He then softly spoke two sentences in Yiddish that I will remember to my dying day. She has numbers on her arm. She is holier than me. Rav Moshe had understood what I had not. Our holiest generation was defined by numbers on their arms. I read this. That's a powerful story. And I sent it to a few people. And one of them sent this back to me. Okay? The hijacking of Moshe Feinstein. Someone once said we're in desperate need of a Jewish Snopes right now. You know what Snopes is? Like, you know, if, if, if something is a, is a fake story, a fake email, or a prank, or right? So it's on Snopes. Right? So... There was a story circulating in the social media about Rav Moshe Feinstein's Zetzal. A popular Rebbe friend of mine tells me it was forwarded to him by a number of yeshiva rebbeim, people from all different walks of life. This author, this is written by Rav Yair Hoffman, right? This author has spoken to Rav Moshe Zetzal's Talmidim, Gabayim, and family members. Conclusion, the story never happened. It's completely false from A to Z. That's what he says. But before we get to the actual story, there's an important piece of information that's described by Douglas Walton in his 1989 book entitled Informal Logic, a handbook for critical argumentation. He describes the idea, I'll summarize, of a loaded question. What's a loaded question? A loaded question is a manipulative Machiavellian question that basically sort of almost forces the respondent to answer in a certain way and doesn't leave him much choice and usually promotes the agenda of the person asking the question, right? As an example, right? Yes or no, have you stopped beating your wife? Okay? Yes or no, have you stopped beating your wife? Now, you can't answer yes or no to a question like that. If you answer, right, either way, you're stuck. Right? If you answer no, then the indication is that you were beating your wife, right? And, and you haven't stopped, and you continue to beat your wife. And if you answer yes, you stop beating your wife, then you're basically saying that you used to beat your wife. So you can't answer the question. Right? Around the elections, I'm sure some of us have experienced an SMS, you get these questions that are geared to get certain answers, right? And it, it seems that there are three components to a loaded question. The first is that it serves or promotes the author's agenda. The second, it's, it, it's difficult to work around the questioner, especially a charismatic questioner's demand. And the third is that the optics are bad. Now the question is, right, by the way, this is straight out of Korach. Right, Korach asks Moshe Rabbeinu, right, you know, do you put a mezuzah on a, on a, on a room in a house that's full of svarim? Moshe can't win. Right? Do you put treles on a talis shakula trelet? That's all trelet. So, so you can't win with a question like that. The question is, right, is there a loaded story? Is there such a thing as a loaded story? So a loaded story is one that sort of shares the qualities of a loaded question in that it serves the author's agenda. 
right? The optics are bad, and it takes great effort to disprove it. So he says, let's look at each element. And he goes through sort of his opinion. Rav Moshe was the God of Lador, his view, his, by the way, position in life was sort of to promote the value of halacha, respect for halacha, for Jewish tradition, etc. Um, he was a living example of halacha. He says it's hard to imagine that, you know, he would allow himself to be kissed by a woman, but you could debate that topic, right? And then he goes through a whole series of, you know, he says, well, if this story happens, supposedly family members would know about it, or Tamidim would know about it, his assistants would know about it. All of them claim it never happened. Again, this is the claim of the person who's writing this. I haven't checked this out, right? He says, can you check the metrics? Can you check the data? Turns out that when this author, the person who wrote the original story, was 14 years old, which is what he says, Rav Moshe Feinstein was nowhere near any camp in Ellenville. He only went to Ellenville much, much later. So he checked that out, so that seemed to be. And all the behavior of the peoples involved within the norms, right? Etc. And he basically concludes, and you can, if somebody wants, you can send me a WhatsApp. I'll send you either one or or. He concludes that this is a completely fake story. It never happened. It couldn't have happened. And therefore... And he has a whole theory as to the agenda of the person who wrote the article who's being accused of all sorts of different things. And right before Yom HaShoah comes up as this sort of sympathetic, etc., etc. So what is the topic that we're speaking about here? Fake news. We are living in a generation where it's difficult for us to know what's real and what's not. How do you know what's right? You know? I imagine that most of us, if not all of us, have met people who think that anyone who doesn't get vaccinated is out of their mind. And I have personally met people, and I imagine some of you, if not all of you have, who think anybody who does get vaccinated is out of their mind. By the way, I don't know if you know, putting aside the question of vaccinating adults and, and sort of people, senior citizens, etc., the next question in Israel, which we'll eventually get to the rest of the world, is vaccinating children. This is actually a much more complicated question because... You know, children, by and large, certainly the highest statistic, and I'm not promoting an opinion. I have a, an opinion, but I, that's not the purpose of this discussion. But um, by and large, most children don't get sick from corona, and if they do, they have mild symptoms. Now, there are exceptions, and that's risk, but the statistical exception is much, much less than the flu. So if, if, if none of the sort of broader picture had occurred, if we hadn't seen people get very sick, if people weren't dying from this disease, they probably wouldn't be vaccinating children with a vaccine that's only been tested for a year, right? On the other hand, right, medical professional, how, how do you know what's right and what's wrong? How do you decide what's fake news and what's not fake news? In America, Trump is either the sum total of all evil in the world, or he's the savior of mankind that was manipulated out by evil people. Now, you know, there are two types of questions in general and certainly in Judaism. There's one type of question where you could be right and you could be right. You know, if you're looking at a painting and you're right up close to the painting, I don't know, a Renoir, right? And, and you're looking at a, at a line of hair. Renoir was known for practicing brushing hair. He could, if you get close to a Renoir and you look at the hair, you can see that he actually painted individual strands of hair. It's remarkable, right? And, and, and so if you're standing up close, you're looking at a hair and someone else is looking at a, a follicle on a person's arm, and you're seeing two totally different images, and you're saying this is a painting of hair or a painting of an arm, and you're both right. When you take a step back, you see the bigger picture, and then you both share the same image. So sometimes a question, you know, you could be right, and you could be right too. Sometimes you have a question where you can't both be right. You know, you're not sure if the food is kosher, right? So Joe Canna, the Yuseppe Rebbe, he comes, he's not sure, is it stark, is it not stark? So one person says it's kosher, you can eat it. One person says it's not kosher, you can't eat it. 
They can't both be right. It either is kosher or it isn't kosher. Right? In the realm of fake news, how do you, how do you achieve an objective result? Now, it used to be that there was a limited number of reputable sources. Right? If you found something in the New York Times, you know you could trust it. Then you went through a period of time where you said, well, if it's in the New York Times, you probably can't trust it. But there were a limited number of sources. Today, today everybody in his mother makes his own website. How do you know what's real? Okay. So this week's Parsha, and I think, by the way, that whereas in the past, sort of to some degree for most of us, uh, certainly for me, the question was a political question. It, was a, it wasn't really an existential question. Corona placed this at the forefront of life and death. Because if people make the mistake of understanding reality incorrectly, then they will make decisions that can get people killed. So it becomes rather important, right? I'm going to suggest by the end of this discussion that, that this has always been so, we just haven't thought about it this way. Okay. So this, this week, uh, we're going to read a double portion, right? Kedoshim. And the truth is that... Uh, when we first talked about uh, giving a shir and gave me a day to think about what we're going to teach, uh, right after Yom Atzimut, right after Yom Zikaron, we're sitting in a shul with blue and white tapestry, right? I thought, ah, oh, that's a great topic, you could imagine. But then I thought, you're probably talked out on that topic for now. So I thought, let's take a look at the Parsha. Parsha Kedoshim, the second of this week's two Parshiot. So those of you who went to a right to know that one of my favorite topics is the Rambam Hilchotayot, right? So half of Hilchodeot is in this week's parsha. I mean, five out of the 11 mitzvot in Hilchodeot and the Rambam's recipe for character excellence and character development are in this week's parsha. So I want to sort of give some thought to one or two of them. Well, let's take one specifically. Okay? So, Lot kalel cheresh v'lifnei ver loti You shouldn't put a stumbling block in front of the blind person. Now, what does that mean? Not supposed to, so obviously, if you, you know, there's a blind person walking down the street and you trip him, that's a nasty thing to do. I don't know the Torah would have to say that you shouldn't do that. That's a pretty specific example. So they're shown in the commentaries, they take this in different directions that sort of suggest that this is a much broader topic. Okay? Rashi, okay, super commentary on the Torah, says the following. Lifnei hasuma bedavar lotitain eitzah. Don't give advice to someone who's basically blinded on this particular topic, right? Don't give a person advice that's bad for him, right? Sometimes you can give a person advice and you know, either based on his perception or based on your relationship with him, that he'll take your advice. But you know that that advice isn't necessarily good for him, right? If I'm a real estate agent and... Um, you know, uh, you trust my word because I'm some big real estate agent and you've just purchased a house in Herzliya. And anybody knows that probably the best investment in Israel is land. It's true on a, on a spiritual level. It's true on a practical level. Like you can never lose with land. The Rambam actually in Hilchodeot says you never sell land for, for stuff. Always sell your stuff to get land. Land lasts forever. Right? Especially if you have land in Eretz Israel, right? So I know if you have a house in Herzliya and you sit in it, eventually, right, in the history of Herzliya, there are probably not many houses that if you sell them 20 years later, you lost money. It'd be hard to find a place in Israel that that would be the case. Just a question of how long you wait. 
but I'm a real estate agent. So if I give you advice, you know, I think you should sell it, then I'm putting a stumbling block. It's going to be your decision. I'm not telling you what to do. You have to make a decision, but you're obviously going to, you're, you're going to mess up. The Rambam, on the other hand, makes this a much more sort of um, halachically uh, appropriate to the particular content of this parsha, And he says basically that you can't cause others to sin, to transgress. Okay? Now what's interesting about this is, why is it lifnei iver? Like, I would have thought, based on either of these commentaries, don't lead someone down a bad path, don't cause someone to sin, don't leave a wallet out on the table, you know, because somebody might come to steal it. So why is that person an iver? Just say, don't, don't leave an obstacle in front of a comrade, in front of a friend. Why is an iver? So in order to understand why the person is blind, we have to think a little bit about blindness. And this will take us back to our fake news discussion. So where do we find blindness? This is interesting. Every morning, make a bracha. Pokeachivrim, right? Everybody knows this bracha, right? Pokeachivrim. The Gemara in Brachos and Daf Samach says, when do you make the bracha of Pokeachivrim, which means to open the eyes of the blind? Anybody know? When do you make, when do you make that bracha? Baruch Hashem, that Hashem opens the eyes of the blind. That we open our eyes in the morning. When would you think you made that bracha? When you wake up and open your eyes. But that's not when you do it. You actually do it when you wash your face. So for many years I thought, well, okay, because, you know, you wake up in the morning, sometimes you can't, like, you know, your, your eye, and then you wash your face and you can see better. But that always bothered me. Like, what does that have to do with washing your face? And if you look at that bracha, it's interesting. Why does it say pokeach ivrim? Pokeach means to open up. In fact, there are some linguists who believe that when you find two words that are so similar, it's really more of a, a historical sort of reality that created those two words. People tend to mispronounce words in slang and they become the new words. So pokech and potech are basically the same word, right? Um, so why is it pokech ivrim? Open up the blind. It should be open your eyes. That's what the bracha should say. Why does it say open the, the blind? And the, the, the implication is to open the eyes of the blind. That's a strange bracha. So in order to understand that, we have to see where else does that appear. So where do we first find the concept of p'kichat enayim, opening the eyes? Where do you first find this? Anybody know? Basic. Where do I first find their eyes were open? Avram. Pardon? Avram. Way before Avram, but it's a good guess. Adam and Chava, right? Always good you have ladies at the Shear. They're way ahead of us, right? <laughs> My wife tells me I'm not supposed to call people ladies. That sounds very old. Girls, women, whatever works for you, right? Okay? So, so it, it says that they ate from the tree of knowledge, right? And their eyes were opened. And they knew. Anybody know? They knew they were naked. Pardon? Well, we'll get back. That's very good. We'll get back to that in a second. But first, let's deal with this one. That's what the Pasuk says. They ate from the tree of knowledge. Their eyes were suddenly opened, and they knew that they were naked. Anything bothered you about that? Just out of curiosity. What did they eat from? What did they eat? They ate from... Eats. New. You know how when you go to a concert, and the guy just gives a concert, and you sit back? Yeah, this isn't a concert. This has to be interactive, okay? I know you're tired. Okay? So they knew they were Okay, so they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And their eyes were open, and they knew, what would I think it would say? 
And they knew the difference between good and evil. They ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I don't know what the fruit looked like on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Was it good and evil fruit? Was there some good fruit and some evil fruit? I'm not sure. But okay. And that's what it should say. I don't know. Kirasu, that they did bad. And they saw the difference between good and evil. That's not what it says. It says, They knew that they were naked. It's a very strange pasuk. So when your eyes are open, you know that you're naked. Interesting. Here's another question. That is the last pasuk in Paragbet. Okay? The very next... Uh, sorry, the last pasuk in, um, um, in Parag Gimel. How does the pasuk start? Right? The Parag. V'hanachash haya arum mikol chayat asadeh. And the nachash was arum. Now, you see these two pasukim in the same Parag. They're, they're next to each other. Right? Putting aside for a moment the Catholic Church's divvying up of the Torah, usually when you see a word, it's the same meaning. So if I say that their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked because they knew they were erumim, and then it says, V'nachash haya arum, mikol chayat asadeh, and the nachash was that the snake was arum, I would assume it means the snake is naked. And in fact, the snake was naked, right? But that doesn't seem to be important to anybody. I looked. I figured there must be some parish, some commentary has a great chap and he's going to tell you why the snake was naked somehow. Nope, they don't talk about that. For the most part, they talk about the fact that the snake was cunning. So arum means cunning. Now that would make sense to me if they knew that they were coming. So I thought, oh, maybe just we all got a mistake. No. It seems that they knew that they were naked. And there's a whole discussion. They knew, v'lo yitpo shashu, right? V'yushnehem, sorry, there was a, there's another puzzle, V'yushnehem arumim, Adam v'yishto, v'lo yitpo shashu. That's the last puzzle in Bet. In Beragimel, the very next puzzle, v'nachash ayarun, they're right next to each other. So what is a room? Why is a room nakedness and cunning at the same time? And what does this have to do with the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And what does it have to do with knowing and, and opening your eyes? How does opening your eyes make you realize that you're naked or more cunning? Interesting. Here's another question. Who gets blind in the Torah? Who gets blind? Who? Yitzchak, right? Yitzchak gets blind. Now, it doesn't say he's Iver, so it's blinding. He's getting slowly blind. I had a student many years ago who um, had a, a debilitating disease which was affecting his eyes, and he was slowly going blind. He was 18 years old. And he had to wear these thick glasses and read with big uh, 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 magnifying glasses, terrible debilitating disease, and he could still see, but he lost like 90% of his vision. So that seems to be what happened to Yitzchak. Yitzchak becomes almost blind. He loses his sight. Now that's interesting. It's interesting, by the way, that the Torah presents this pasuk as he gets old as an introduction to the story of the blessings of Yaakov and Esau, right? Which is interesting. The Torah didn't have to do that. The Torah could have said this at the end of Parashat Toldo, at the end of his life, that he became old. But it's introduced because he can't see and that's why he can't tell the difference between Esau and Yaakov, right? It's a little bit of a problem. Primarily because it makes no sense. I mean, can I know how I have four children? If you brought my two boys to me, right, Yonatan and Yair, and you blindfolded me, there is no way that I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two of them. In fact, I don't even think they'd have to speak. I'd just put my hand on each shoulder, and I'd know. One of them's in the army, he's an officer. I'd tell the difference, right? You know, you just, that's just the way it is. If they spoke to me, has anybody here 
ever call, I mean, maybe you have certain exceptions like twins, but did you ever call, I don't know if he's a good example. I know you sound like your brothers. Do you call your parents? They want to know which one of you it is. They know which one it is. Yeah. No, they, they don't know. They don't know it is? Okay. So they're getting blind and old. Okay. <laughs> so what does it mean? So Yitzchak gets blinded. Now it's interesting. Yitzchak gets blinded. Rivka, on the other hand, is not blinded. Rivka knows quite well that that Yaakov is the one who needs to get the blessing. Now, how does Rivka know this? We know exactly how Rivka knows this. Anybody remember how Rivka knows this? How does Rivka know this? Anybody? How does Rivka know? I'm not putting you on the spot. I'm just asking. You don't have to know. It's okay, right? You just go to Gehenna. That's okay, right? How does Rivka absolutely know that Yaakov is the chosen one? Am I remember? Pardon? That's exactly right. A nevuah. See? I told you. It's good that the, the girls are here, right? I'm going to get in trouble. I call you ladies, women, women girls. Women. Not sure, right? Ladies women? Ladies is good. Oh, Shalom I didn't see you there. Good to see you. Ladies works? Okay. I got told by my wife, ladies sound so old. It's like the auxiliary and the, you know, the Amuna women. But all right. I grew up ladies, right? Okay. So nevuah. Rivka is pregnant. Pshat Napasuk is she has no idea that she has two children in her. And her, what she thinks is one baby is going bananas. In fact, if you buy the Medrash, I don't personally think the Medrash is meant to be taken literally. It's not a history book. It's a, it's a message. But if you did take it literally, every time she walks by a house of study or a shul, a base Medrash, you know, Yaakov wants to get out. And every time... You know, she walks by some idolatrous house. Asaph wants to get out. And it's like, vroom, 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 right? you know, you, you could see the Disney cartoon with the belly going this way and that way. And she's going nuts. They're struggling. Right? So she says, if that's it, what am I here for? What's going on? On a deep level, Anochi, which is sort of Anochi Hashem Elokecha, right? Who am I? Am I the mother of this or am I the mother of that? What's going on? What's this all for if I... So, so she goes to seek Hashem. Which may mean that she goes to a Navi, that may be shame or Aver, that's a whole diff- interesting discussion. What does Hashem tell her? Don't worry. There are two nations in you. And two different nationalities will split from the womb as soon as they're born. And they will struggle. Some say eternally. And the greater one will ultimately serve the younger one. So she sees Yaakov as the younger one. Esav clearly becomes the greater one. He's stronger. He's... So she knows who to choose. Now, this is interesting. Yitzchak and Rivka, by the way, we don't have time to get into this, have the best marriage of all three of the Avot. They never argue. Even through the story of the brachot of Yaakov and Esav, you never see conflict. Right? You see that when Rivka is sort of pretending to be the sister and she gets taken by Avimelech, how does Avimelech find out that she's really not Yitzchak's sister? They're right? They're laughing. And laughing doesn't mean, ha-ha, they heard a funny, you know, Jay Leno joke. Right? Laughing means something in, more intimate. Right? Tzchok, uh, in many different places. Yishmael, by Chayta Egel, means some sort of behavior that's intimate. So they had a good relationship. Yaakov and Rachel have an argument. Avram and Sarah have an argument. They never have an argument. So it's interesting. You would think they have a good marriage. What do you do if you're Rivka and you know the truth? You tell your husband. So it's an interesting question why that doesn't happen. But let's assume for the moment for whatever reason it doesn't happen. Yitzchak doesn't know. 
Rivka knows. Yitzchak doesn't know. Why doesn't Yitzchak know? One way of understanding why Yitzchak doesn't know, this is the Sfatimet, is because Yitzchak is eating of the food of Esav. Now, let's think about this for a minute. You know, I remember um, I got called in by the Mempei. I was at the time a Samach Mempei. And uh, he calls me, he says, listen, you know, this soldier, whatever, he broke Shmirah, and he needs a Mishpat. We gotta give him Mishpat, but I gotta go to wherever. You do the Mishpat, right? You give the court martial. I didn't like doing court martials. I'm too much of a Rachman, but fine. So he tells me the name of the soldier. I say, I can't do the Mishpat. Why can't I do the Mishpat? Because when we were in Lebanon, we had in our unit that the, the, the officers also did Shmirah. We also did our bit. We felt it was important, role model, whatever. And I would very often take the tougher Shmirah, like the middle of the night, whatever. I thought that would be a good example for the men or whatever. And this soldier, I don't know how he did it. He always knew when I was doing Shmirah. And he would somehow always show up with a piping hot cup of coffee. And he would stay for 10, 15 minutes. And we would now, I knew what he was doing. He was shmuchling me, right? You know, get to know the officer. Next time you need a yitziah. But you know what? Even though I knew that's what he was doing, he had such chain. He was such a great guy. I thought it was such a nice thing to do, right? That I naturally had a liking for him. So I told him, I can't do a mishpat for this guy. There's a pasuk that says that I can't do a mishpat. Anybody know what the pasuk is? should be in Kedoshim, but it's not. Anybody know? Lo tikach shochad. You're not supposed to take a bribe. Because it blinds the wise. You know, Rav Dessler in his Mikhtam al he makes a great point. He says, why do you have this, this, this injunction that you shouldn't take a bribe? That's something specifically for judges. Why do we all need to hear this in the Torah? If you're a judge, you should learn not to take a bribe. But why do all of us need to hear this in the Torah? He says, think about it. Let's say you want to look up a halacha. You want to know if you're allowed to play chess on Shabbat afternoon. Monopoly, right? Why are you looking up that halacha? Because you want to play Monopoly. I, I don't look up just Stam, you know, because I have no interest in playing Monopoly. So you're bribed. You're looking up a halacha that you already want to find a particular answer. We're all bribed. And because we're bribed, we become blind. Yitzchak is eating the food of Esav. And because he eats the food of Esav, he can no longer see Esav objectively. He's blinded. He's not seeing things objectively. Right? By the way, it's interesting. Okay? So Yitzchak is blinded by Esav. What is the province of Esav? Esav is the Ish Sadeh. He's the man of the field. So the food from the field is what blinds you. Okay? Now, Adam and Chava, right, to a certain degree, are impacted by the snake. What is the province of the snake? The same sadeh, the same field. So the field is what blinds you on a certain level. And of course, the rabbis compare the nachash to the yetzerah, to the thing. We're not objective. So just like shochad bribery blinds us, blinding therefore means that you no longer see the world objectively. Do you know what the bracha of pokeach ivrim means? Pokeach ivrim in the morning means... Will I see the world objectively? Will I be able to see truth? Will I see reality? I'll give you a great example, okay? Um, when I was in officer's course, right? You can't have a share with that good army story, right? When I was in officer's course, so there were many topics that they wanted us to understand. 
and they had a whole system for how to get to all these topics. You know, if you need to be a leader, an officer, these are the things you have to go through. And usually it was a one-hour lecture here, a two-hour lecture there, maybe there was a test or whatever. And most of it, of course, you can imagine, was out in the field, was out in Shatah. So one day we're brought back to base, and we spent the whole day in base. And we dealt with this particular issue all day. Okay, anybody here, an officer? Curious if they still do this, right? But actually I should ask you here, but okay, right? So, so all day. And the most amazing part of this, this particular issue, was, at the, I mean, don't get me wrong, it was great, because finally we had a day. We're sitting, it was like, I don't know, January, February, whatever it was, and, and we're sitting in a heated classroom all day having schmoozle. It was great, right? And, you know, they, have a, they break out into groups and discuss this, and, you know, this particular Moresha Krav, and what would you do, this battle story, and then you come back. 9, 9.30 at night, we think we're almost done for the day, and we come back into the classroom, right? And they sit us all down. And who comes in? Shaul Mufaz. Shaul Mufaz then was the Mabas, the, the base commander of Badechad. He would later become uh, Ramatkal and eventually defense minister, right? And he comes in, and I mean, this is a person of legend, right? First of all, we all knew that he had been in Entebbe. Uh, in fact, they showed us Operation Thunderbolt while we were in Badechad. That's a whole story in and of itself. So it kind of blew me away that he's sitting there at 939, coming just to speak to our Pluga. He's the base commander, but okay. I later, much later, found out that they worked out the schedule that every pluga should do this on a different day because he was determined to sit with each pluga on this topic. And he did not let us go, and he did not leave, I think until like 11, 11.30 night, until he was sure that every single cadet there had gotten around to his point of view. Now, the topic was Torah Neshek. How to deal with some of the, the, the moral dilemmas that you have in terms of fire. And you don't really get why he's spending so much time on this until you're actually in the field. And maybe you're, I don't know, you're going down an alley in Beirut and you're in the lead tank and there's a tube sticking out literally the distance from here to the end of the table, right? And you see the tube, you know exactly where it's moving. It's an RPG. And you know, because they've trained you this again and again, right? That whoever's holding that RPG, he just has to jump out, aim it at, a tank, at the tank and press the trigger and that's it. It's a Dorishon, it's, it's, he doesn't have to keep it on target, nothing. It's a 52-ton tank. It, it looks like huge in his view. I mean, he doesn't have to aim. So you reach down for your mashbet, which is your override uh, control in the tank. You, you don't have time to bring the gun around to make sure he's firing. You just have to sort of make... The, the gun has to be in the general area, which it already is. You just have to be manmich, you have to lower a little. You don't have to hit him. You just have to hit him in the area where he is. You always have a dual-purpose shell in your breech, it's, uh, you know, it's against armor, and it's also, you know, Nunalif, it's against a man, it's called a meich, whatever. All you have to do is hit anywhere in the air, and he's toast. And as you're doing this, and it's a game, it's a race. It's like a video game, except it's not a video game. Whoever wins, if he pulls the trigger or you pull your trigger, and as you're, you've got a second, two seconds, right? And then you realize why they spent a the whole day on this. Because it's an eight-year-old kid. Now, you look at the world through two different lenses. You look at the world through the lens of Rachamim. If you look at this through the lens of Rachamim, right, mercy, you can't fire. He's an eight-year-old kid. It can't be that you could blame this kid for what he's about to do. He's been brainwashed. He's been trained. He thinks we're baby rapers. I don't know, whatever it is, right? I know that's a mixed metaphor, but you get the point, right? On the other hand, if you look through the... So you won't fire at him. And if you don't fire at him, in this particular instance, I'm not sitting here now. 
maybe nobody would ever have gone to a writer, my children would have been born, etc. On the other hand, if you look at it through the lens of Din, you absolutely fire it, and you know that you're right to fire it, because you're responsible for the men in your command, and blah, blah, blah. So how do you know which way to look? What is real, and what is fake news? When am I blinded, and when am I seeing reality? Just a personal opinion, although there are Mepharshim who allude to this, when you make the bracha of pokeh ivrim in the morning, that Hashem opens the eyes of the blind, are we, is this day going to be a day where we see things correctly, or are we going to be blinded? And I think maybe one of the reasons that you say this bracha when you wash your face is because washing your face is what you do as you go out into the world. This is about how you see the world. It's not just about opening your eyes. It's not just appreciating the gift of sight. The gift of sight is a physical reality. How you see the world is a subjective reality. And it's a little scary because there is only one way to see the world correctly. Do you see it through the lens of the Sadeh, of Esav, or do you see it from the O.L. of Yaakov? By the way, what is Yaakov's quality? There are two qualities Yaakov had. One is Tiferet, right? Avram is Chesed, Yitzchak is Gvura. Avram is outgoing energy, Chesed. Yitzchak is Gvura, surrender, receiving. What is Yaakov Tiferet? Some sort of balance. Okay. Anybody know what the other quality of Yaakov is? Pardon? Titain. Emet Yaakov. Emet. Right? Emet. That's what it is. Now, why is Tiferet, which is balance, why does Tiferet relate to Emet? Because Emet is be able to see Rachamim and Din at the same time and know what's right. Where does Emet come from? Emet comes from the oil. What is the oil? That's right. The oil is Torah. The Sadeh is the world, is the internet, is... Right? The oil is Torah. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that you can't see incorrectly through the prism of Torah. That's a whole other discussion. But now that brings us back to our original question, right? You know, how do we... How do we open up our eyes? And I told you at the beginning, I'm going to ask you a question. Not sure I know the answer. I do believe that the first stepping stone to reality... You know, it's interesting... Some of you will remember this from Hilcho Deor. The Rambam has many different names for the balanced path that he believes we have to follow. He calls it Derech HaTovim, Derech HaChachamim, Derech Hashem. But the principal name that he calls it is Derech HaYishara. And one of the things that some of us have studied is why is it called the straight path? Because when a path is straight, you can see where you're going, you can see where you're coming from. As opposed to a curved path where you can't see what's around the bend. So what does it mean to see where you're coming from? It means that you understand that the source of ethics isn't me, right? It's not what makes me feel good. The source of ethics is a bigger authority. If, if there isn't an objective authority, if there isn't, by the way, this doesn't prove anything. Maybe we made God up to solve this problem. But if, if there isn't an authoritarian source for ethics, if ethics are based on, you know, um, I'll give you just one example of this idea and then we'll open the floor to questions because to my mind, that's the real fun. But, you know, in this... Um, in, this, uh, in the same parsha are the mitzvah of loti kom loti tor. Not supposed to take revenge, not supposed to bear a grudge. So the Gemara in Yom and Daf Chav Gimel says, what does this mean? So, right, taking revenge is where I, you know, I ask you, I want to borrow your car, and you won't lend me your car. And then chutzpah, the next day you say, you know what, can I borrow your car? So I say, no, you didn't lend me 
your car. I'm not going to lend you my car. That's revenge. I'm not going to do that. Okay. What's bearing grudge? Bearing a grudge is the same story. Although it's interesting, Gemara says a week later, Liamim, but I'm not going to go there. Right? And you didn't lend me your car. And now you come and ask me for my car. And I say, you know what? Even though you didn't lend me your car, I'm still going to lend you my car because I'm not like you. Right? Not allowed to do that. So the first you ask, why? First of all, by the way, that doesn't mean that if somebody doesn't lend me his car, I have to lend him my car. It just means that if I don't lend him my car, it's not because he didn't lend me his. Right? And, and the real question is on the comma, what's so terrible about, about, about being bothered by the fact that he didn't lend me his car? So there's a fellow named Pritchard who wrote a, a, a book, uh, sorry, Joseph Fletcher, who wrote a book. Um, I saw this in an article once by Riskin, so I looked it up online. He wrote a book called Situation Ethics. And in this book, he believes that, um, that, that loving ends justify any means. That's what he says. If your ends are full of love, they justify any means. Right? And he believes in relative ethics, that it depends on the situation. Judaism does not. Judaism believes in independent ethics. The fact that I should do a mitzvah for my fellow is, has to be completely independent of whether he would do the same thing for me. I don't do good for him because he did good for me. I do good for him because it's good. The Kutzko Rebbe said this really well. Kutzko Rebbe said, if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, then I'm not I and you're not you. Then we're not real. If, if my whole reality is based on you, whether you look at that through the lens of peer pressure, or you look at that through the lens of social behavior, or you look at that through the lens of uh, ethics, then I'm not really ethical. I'm just ethical because you're ethical. But if I am I, right, despite you not being you, and you are you despite not being then, then you're really you and I'm really I. Right? Independent ethics. So when it comes back to the question of fake news, how do you know what's real and what's not? It seems to me that there are two things you have to have. The first is, to the best of our ability, we have to have an independent objective source. And that's Torah and Halacha, etc. When Torah and Allah doesn't fill the gap, you won't find in the Torah unless you're a mystic who loves gematria or something, or you're into the codes, whether you should vote for Trump or Biden, right? When the Torah doesn't give you the answer, and I don't think the Torah is always supposed to give us the answer, Torah wants us to choose our own answers, then perhaps, and this is the question that gets left unanswered, then perhaps it becomes a question of trust. Do we have sources that we trust? You know? There are certain people, if Aaron Lichtenstein told me that something in his mind is absolute truth, the likelihood that I would believe him to be correct would be almost 100%, right? So developing those relationships, and the Rambam calls this chachamim, right? People of balance and stature. You have to have chachamim in your life because sometimes you don't know what objective truth is, right? The Rambam talks about a reality in, in Perak Bet in Hilchodea that sometimes a person thinks that what's sweet is sour and what's sour is sweet, such a person who thinks that what's sweet is sour, right? He thinks, he thinks dirt is healthy to eat. You know what's a better example? An anorexic. An anorexic thinks that he or she has to lose weight. And you look at them and you know they have to gain weight. It's dangerous for them to lose weight. But they can't possibly realize that because they're seeing a reality that's skewered. Do you know the only thing that can save an anorexic? Is that there's someone in that anorexic's life that they trust. And that person that they really trust, even though to them it seems crazy, somehow convinces them you need, to, you need to be different than what you think you are. You need to behave differently. So you have to find those people in your life before you encounter fake news.
it seems to me that, you know, this year with, with uh, Corona and everything else that's been going on, we're discovering sort of what percentage of society just doesn't have that in their life. They don't have an objective truth, and they don't even have objective trust in Chachamim. We don't trust our leaders, we don't trust our politicians, we don't trust our rabbis. So there's nothing left. There's no way to recognize what's real and what's fake. So I guess that takes you back to basics. A little bit of food for thought, the week of Achrei Mokadoshim. Open the floor to questions, because if you don't have any good questions, this was a waste of time. So go ahead. What's on your mind? Anything. On this, on any yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I think this is something I see as more of an issue in the U.S., but I think it's definitely something that takes place here as well, where it seems to be that nuance has come out of the conversation, taken away, and everything's very black and white, and people kind of stick to their teams with their opinions, and the right. conversation about ideas has uh, often ceased to exist, and you know, people just follow oftentimes blindly the, the specific team or side or whatever it is that they, uh, mm-hmm. they subscribe to. And I was wondering just what's your opinion on that in terms of future and how... Oh, that's a very good question. People subscribing to their team or their perspective. You'll never get a Trump follower to, to sort of hear that there might be wisdom in listening to Biden and you'll never get Biden's followers to, and so on and so forth, right? I think it's most interesting also when you'll, you'll see something that, let's say, just to use that example, that, that Trump would do that might have been a talking point of Democrats for a while or something that Biden would right. do that might have been a talking point right. of Republicans for a while. Right. But because if, it's coming from that right. specific right. source, they can't endorse it. Because so I'll tell you something interesting. I'll tell you something interesting. Um, there have been a number of studies on this, but one of the ways that we receive information is through algorithms, right? So whether it's the, 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 the website that you're on or the web browser you're using, Google, Safari, whatever it is, they begin to realize what you're interested in, okay? So for example, if you read mostly, I don't know, I, I read the Jerusalem Post. And there's a particular fellow, I don't know, let's take an example. There's a guy named Gershon Baskin. And he, he's never going to write an article that says, maybe we should consider annexing, you know, or, or, or declaring sovereignty in the state. It's not his position, right? So, so I've learned over the years, like, I just don't read his articles. They say the same thing. On the other hand, if Naftali Bennett sort of, you know, uh, writes an article about, you know, why we should change the system of uh, judicial providence in, 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 so then I might read it. So they realize what you're reading and they start to send you more of the same. So I don't get emails or advertisements, et cetera, that appeal to the person who reads Gershon Baskin. I get them to the person who appeals whatever. And if you're a Republican, you get, you know, news stories that appeal to a Republican. And if you, so what happens is your perception is constantly being reinforced until you can no longer see the other reality. One of the things that we can do is we can recognize which reality we're, per, we're, we're currently in and seek to begin reading an opinion or a position that's completely different from ours, right? I'll give you an example. And by the way, this fits another topic that some of us have talked about before. Personal opinion, but I think it's based on the nativ. You can't disagree with someone until you first respect where they're coming from, okay? If you can't respect where a person coming from, then you're not disagreeing with him, you're discounting him. And sometimes you might choose to discount someone, right? I don't personally feel a need to respect Adolf Hitler. I discount his views completely. That's not a dialogue. That's a war, 
right? On the other hand, um, somebody who believes in a two-state solution, without getting into politics, so that, uh, that's not my personal opinion, but I want to understand why he thinks that. It's a bit of a, of a mystery to me. How after what, 20, 30 years, some really intelligent people still think that we should be pursuing peace with you know, Mahmoud Abbas and we should still be looking to develop a two-state solution, even though it seems to be absurd. I want to understand that position. To the degree that we're able to begin to understand the different position, right, then we can have a dialogue. And you first have to be aware of why it is that you're not getting very much information on that position because you're subscribing to another one. Right? I personally think that the, you know, going to the army is, is, is an unbelievable mitzvah and it's part of Muhammad mitzvah. So if I really want to be open-minded, I have to really try to understand why someone would think that anybody going to the army is mevat al-Torah and risking too much and that the ideal is to sit and learn all day. Now, sometimes it's easy to understand another position. Sometimes it's very difficult. You know, uh, I mean, I can give you examples. So I, I, that's not the answer, but it's at least something we can do to, to, to become a little more objective. You know? Um, cool? Anybody else have a question? No. Yeah. What's your name? Yehudis. Yehudis. Okay, Yehudis. Uh. Yeah. Yeah? Um, it's possible I missed it, but when Oh, no, I didn't get to it. That's true. Very good point. Why is it that Adam and Chava saw that they were a rum? And how does a rum relate to... Con- it's interesting that in the beginning of that whole story, it says, and they were both naked. Right? This is the last passage before the whole story of, you know, Eitzadat, right? of the Tree of Knowledge. And they were a rumim. Now, what does lo yit boshashu mean? So one of the other places you find the concept of boshesh is by Cheta Ego. Vayar ha'am ki boshesh Moshe. And Rashi there and most of the commentaries say that people saw that Moshe was late. He tarried. So boshesh is a certain hesitation. It's recognizing that there's a limitation. Right? So Adam and Chava, right, are, have no busha, which means they have no limits. Now who has no limits? Who has no hesitation? Who has no embarrassment? Who has no boundaries? Animals. Animals have no boundaries. Eat what you want, sleep, do what you want, etc. A person who doesn't have the ability to choose the difference between good and evil is a person who functions on an instinct. There's no boundaries. So, vayushnehem erumim means that they were naked. They were naked. In fact, Chazal said they were naked of mitzvah. What do mitzvot give me? Mitzvot give me limitations. Mitzvot give me boundaries. Mitzvot teach me that not everything that feels good is good. And they don't have that. Right? So they're Aram. When they eat from Eitzadat, Tovara, Vayifkachu Eneim, Vayeduki Erumim, they suddenly realize that they were Aram, that they had been without boundaries. That, that, that they, anything they wanted to do, they wanted to do. You know, if it feels good, if it tastes good, eat it. That's what they did with the tree. Their eyes were open. They realized that they have a choice. Do I want to live life as an animal? No boundaries, no limits, right? Or do I want to aspire to a higher level and limit myself? You know, it's like, uh, it's a longer story, but um, many years ago I worked in a program called Israelites and uh, we had students who um, came from varying backgrounds, most of them very little Jewish background. And I remember I was doing a series, the Araita guys will remember this story, but I was doing a series on the Aserat Adibrot, on the Ten Commandments. And 
we got to the commandment of lotinaf, not to adulter. And we're discussing this, like, what's wrong with adultery, you know? You see someone, maybe she's married and she's really unhappy, and you're married and you're unhappy, and together you have a great time, and everybody makes everybody happy, and your, your wife never knows about it, the husband never knows about it, everybody's happy. So what's so bad about that, right? So we got into the whole discussion about that. And it came up in the discussion that I had never had, Baruch Hashem, a physical relationship, right? Never had a relationship before I got married. Now, when I'm sitting in an audience like this, well, yeah, of course, you know, from guy, you don't, you know. But if you're in that type of audience, that was like shocking for them. So they wanted to understand what that meant. And it turned into a discussion. And then I moved the discussion back to a different place. Afterwards, this girl came over to me, this lady, and she was like, she just couldn't handle this. She, she, you know, she's like, I just want to understand. Like, you never, I said, no, never, never. I said, no, never. She said, I hope you don't mind my ass. I said, no, it's fine. She said, like, Really? I said, yeah. She said, I don't understand. Like, she said, I'm going out with a guy. I don't know, Bill, right? And, and I want to know if Bill's a good match. So I want to, you know, I'll take him for the test drive, right? And let's say I'm going out with Ted. Who's more compatible? So one of the factors is, you know, how is he in the sack, right? You know, can we connect to each other? Right? Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, right? Okay, right? So I said, the problem is if you're dating Bill and Ted... You're not really dating either of them, right? Kedusha, Kedushin, is limiting yourself, but only when you limit yourself to one person can you discover unlimitedness with that person. And that's exactly what happens in the story of Eitz Haddad. So That's why I think that their eyes were opened, because they, they see a more objective reality, right? The, the, the reality of pursuit of pleasure is very subjective. So you're blinded in a certain way, Right? The objective reality based on Torah is a truth that doesn't come from us. It comes from something bigger than us. And that's sort of hidden in that story. Um, anyway, we'll uh, let me just put this on pause and uh, wish you well.